0: Well, welcome again uh, to Trinity Grace. So glad that you're here, especially if you're a guest with us this morning. Many of you will know that we have been working our way through a series in First Peter. And if you've got a Bible, you'll wanna to turn to First Peter chapter four. The passage is also printed for you in your bulletin. And we're gonna be looking at this letter that Peter wrote to a group of churches in modern day Turkey up until the Advent season here at Trinity Grace, up until the first Sunday in December, when we'll turn our attention to celebrating the christmas season together. A few years ago, my family and I went to spend a summer in Scotland, and we spent a summer in Scotland ministering with our denomination's missions agency Mission to the World is what it's called, and we spent our days in Scotland basically working there alongside the Free Church of Scotland, which is a sister denomination to our denomination, and we spent our days there helping them put on children's Bible clubs in different cities throughout Scotland. I had the opportunity to give some tired pastors there a break and preach for them from time to time. We hosted events throughout the cities that we were in in an effort to reach those different communities that we were living in at the time. And if you know much about the United Kingdom, you likely know that it's an increasingly post-Christian society. And this is especially true in the country of Scotland. This was a country that at one time was vibrant with Christianity giving us uh, the great tradition of Presbyterianism that we're a part of today and Reformed uh, faith, Reformed theology. But now, if you were to visit there, Christianity isn't looked on with much favor at all. In fact, by most all statistics, the Christian religion is rapidly disappearing in Scotland. I remember being there on our visit and seeing beautiful church buildings across that country but they were no longer hosts of Christian worship. Instead, they were turned into athletic centers or pubs or even mosques. And Christians in that country would constantly lament when they considered the state of Christianity in their communities, even saying things to me like, we used to be the country of the book or the Bible. What happened? Well, while Christianity for sure is exploding in other areas of the world specifically Africa and South America, I don't think I'm being overly pessimistic when I say that America, statistically speaking, is going the way of the United Kingdom with regard to Christianity. In fact, many theologians and sociologists would argue that we're about 15 to 20 years behind them with regard to moving into a post-Christian culture and society. This past week, I saw where Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, wrote this. He said, one effect of secularization is that our children and grandchildren will not act like Christians unless they are. One effect of secularization is that our children and grandchildren will not act like Christians unless they are. The whole concept of nominal Christianity is increasingly becoming a thing of the past. And this can actually be a counterintuitive blessing for the church because we're being forced into a sort of purification process where nominal Christians have no real cultural or societal reasons to stick with the church if they don't really believe in Jesus. And this process can actually give the church a stronger prophetic voice and a more powerful presence as it speaks with greater unity and passion into a post-Christian culture. And this is really one of the ideas that Peter picks up on in our passage this morning. He's offering us a compelling vision of what life is meant to look like as we move further into our new cultural reality. What does living as a Christian look like in our society? Well, to see what I mean, you follow along as I read from 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who were already dead, that though judged in the flesh of the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, this is God's word and he gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we pray this morning a simple prayer that your truth would be spoken, that your truth be received and that we would be set free by that truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I wonder how many of you have a favorite home restoration show. I don't think it'd be a stretch to say that over the past five years, the home restoration genre of TV show has been the most popular. You've got the Property Brothers, you've got Flip or Flop, and you've got everyone's favorite in Texas, The Fixer Upper. It's a show that put Waco on the map. My grandparents actually drove down this past week and they stopped in Waco just to visit Magnolia, Chip and Jessica's place, or Joanna. Chip and Joanna, right? Chip and Joanna, okay. Well, all of these shows basically have the same premise. You've got an old, run-down, outdated, beat-up house, and it's purchased, and it's transformed and restored into a new, functional, beautiful space. And the climax of every one of these shows always happens towards the end of the show, and it's really the best part. It's when the audience is finally allowed to see the reveal. It's the reveal. And it's at this point in the show where you're taken through all the before and after pictures of the house, You see what once was on one hand and you get a chance to see the complete transformation and restoration that's happened on the other. And it's really captivating to see. It's pretty exciting when they reveal this restoration that's taken place. And as we look at our passage this morning, this idea of transformation and restoration is really one of the main themes that Peter touches on. He's highlighting what followers of Jesus look like by talking about transformation and restoration, by talking about the restoration that has taken place in our lives because of Jesus. As we read verses 1 through 11, it almost reads like a before and after picture. We see what we once were in the first few verses, and then Peter paints a picture in verses 7 through 11 of what a new restored you looks like. And as we pick back up in Peter's letter, he's just encouraged his readers at the end of chapter 3 with Christ's triumphant vindication. He talks about how Jesus has come to defeat evil and to defeat death through his resurrection. And now Jesus, as we speak, is sitting and reigning at God's right hand. And because that's true, because that is reality, even though we don't always see it, he begins to lay out the implications of Christ's victory for us, his followers. And what we see from verses 1 through 11 is that Jesus has ushered in the possibility of a new life for those who trust in him. Because of Christ's victory, because of his resurrection, the process of cosmic restoration has begun. And we can get true, real tastes of that restoration even in our lives now today. In fact, you could say that the resurrection of Jesus is God's down payment on restoration, Uh, assuring us that God really loves us. His resurrection is screaming to us that he really wants to set us free and to bring new life to us. I wonder if given the chance where you would want to see this resurrection power in your life this morning. What areas of your life would you like to experience more freedom and restoration in? Maybe you'd like to see restoration relationally. And there are some relationships in your life that seem dead and beyond the point of being salvaged and you've just grown apathetic and you're not sure that they'll ever be what they once were. Maybe you'd like to see restoration in your marriage. It's not the kind of marriage that you once dreamed of, And often it just seems like you're barely making it kind of coexisting with one another. Maybe you'd like to see restoration in your vocation, your profession. You're bored and unmotivated. You've lost the passion that you once had in your work and you wonder if it'll ever come back, if you'll ever be excited to wake up and head to the office or head back into the kitchen and and be working at home. Maybe you'd like to see restoration in your sexuality. You're tired of constantly fighting and falling under the same temptations over and over and over again. In our passage this morning, Peter wants to give us a taste of what this restoration looks like as we follow Jesus. He paints a before and after picture for us, showing us what our old life once was and giving us a vision for what our new life in Christ could be. But oftentimes, you and I remain resistant to what God wants to give us, to this restoration that he offers. Mark Buchanan, in his book entitled The Rest of God, talks specifically about this restoration that Jesus offers, and he says this, a curious thing about restoration is that it doesn't need doing. Strictly speaking, life carries on without it. Restoration is an invasion. It's fixing something that's broken, but broken so long that it's almost mended. We have the ability to adapt to our misfortunes, to make all the necessary adjustments. Restoration meddles with what we've learned to live with. We often accept the broken parts of our lives. We teach ourselves tricks to bypass it, to contain it, to utilize it even. We build our lives around not being whole. But Jesus comes and by his resurrection, he offers us wholeness. He offers us a different path. He wants to bring that to you this morning. It's what Peter is saying in verses one and two of our passage that as we follow our risen King, we've decided to leave sin behind and to live for something different. And Peter gives us a glimpse of what that looks like in our passage. And we're gonna look at it under two headings this morning. We're gonna look at the old way of life and the new way of life. Or in other words, we're going to look at the before picture and the after picture of a follower of Jesus. So let's start by taking a look at the before. Let's spend some time seeing how Peter describes our old way of life. Peter begins showing us what our old way of life looked like in verse 3. And he's encouraging us to give up our old way of doing life, to put away sin. It's what Peter is saying in verse 3 when he says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles or those who don't believe in God, want to do. He's saying, we've had enough of that life. You've tried it, and it's left you empty. And then he goes on to list some of the things that characterize this old way of life. He says, sensuality, unchecked passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. Basically, Peter is painting a broad picture of life here where you simply do what feels good a life where you are your own authority, a life that's focused on yourself. Peter's saying, be done with that. You have had enough of that to last a lifetime. The old way of life actually comes and it violates the image of God inside each one of us. This way of life vandalizes the good things that God wants for us. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it, when thinking about how this way of life works against what God wants to offer us. It's printed for you at the beginning of your bulletin. He says this, we poison the wine that God decants into us. We murder a melody that he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait that he would paint. Peter is calling us here to stop cheapening life, to refuse to settle for lesser things, and to leave our old way of life. And when you leave this life behind, Peter continues, the life that can't satisfy those who remain behind, those who don't follow you into this new way of life that Jesus is inviting us into, they're gonna be surprised that you don't join them anymore. And then they may begin to feel that your new behavior is implicitly judging their way of life. They won't like being around you too much. They'll say, come on, loosen up. What happened? Live a little. And they begin to grow angry, and Peter says, they'll malign you. But we're called to leave that in God's hands, Peter says in our passage. And Paul reminded the Corinthians that we shouldn't be surprised at this. Remember, in Corinthians, he said, we're a fragrance or aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. I love how this plays out in my own life. Oftentimes, I play golf sometimes, and normally I try to go and get paired with two or three other people, other golfers, and it's just people that you meet randomly at the golf course. And we normally get through a few holes, and sometimes when you play golf, some four letter words are oftentimes used. I don't use those words, but the people I play with do. Anyway, after three or four or five, six holes, sometimes making the turn, they ask, What do you do for a living? And I get the opportunity to tell them I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden, their language completely changes. <laughs> and they're minding their P's and Q's on the golf course, sometimes asking me to pray for them at the end of the round or even between shots. But this life that we're leaving behind, it's a life that doesn't bring the satisfaction that our souls crave. It's a life that leaves us more and more empty. It's a life that leads to death ultimately one day, but even now, death in small ways in the here and now. There's a great story about a rabbi and a young disciple who were one day sitting under the shade of a large oak tree and the student was seeking the help from this rabbi because he was coming to realize that he was so unfaithful in his life. This student had a desire to follow God on one hand, but on the other hand, he found that he was constantly looking to other sources of satisfaction, even to his own shame. And so with that, the rabbi says this, my son, listen to the story I'm about to tell you. Long ago, a skylark flew above the parched and desolate ground of the desert. Times were hard for all living things, and worms were not easy to come by for a creature of the air. Even so, the skylark sang a winsome song day after day as he sought his daily portion. And as each day passed, the difficulty in finding food grew more extreme, and in his hunger he began to grow restless, and in his restlessness he forgot how to sing. One day, the skylark heard an unfamiliar voice. It was the voice of a traveling peddler. And the skylark couldn't believe what the peddler seemed to be selling. Worms, worms, mouth-watering worms, cried the peddler. Come right up and get your delicious worms today. Incredulous, at this sudden good fortune, the skylark hopped closer and the peddler drew near. Worms today, two worms for one feather, said the peddler. And at the mention of worms, the skylark felt a pang of hunger, and suddenly he understood. My feathers are many, thought the skylark, imagining the tastes of the worms in his beak. Surely I will not miss just two small feathers. So unable to resist any longer, the skylark plucked two of the smallest feathers and surrendered them to the peddler, who unbeknownst to the skylark was the unholy one in disguise." as promised, the skylark had his choice of the fattest, juiciest worms he had ever seen, and all without needing to dig and claw in the unyielding ground. So the skylark took hold of four glistening worms and swallowed them. Such small sacrifice, yet such great reward, the skylark told himself. Two small feathers is of no concern to me. So with his stomach full, the skylark stepped from his high perch and began to soar, and as he did, he began to sing once again. The next day, the skylark swooped and sang until he met the nefarious peddler once again. And just as before, the peddler offered two worms for one feather. So the skylark feasted on the luscious worms until he had his fill. So it went day after day. Times were hard for all living things, and worms were not easy to come by for creatures of the air. One day after finishing the worms, the skylark attempted to take flight, and instead of soaring, he plummeted to the ground with a thud. Stunned but grateful to be alive, the skylark realized he had no more feathers. Of course, he could no longer fly. The rabbi paused for so long that the disciple thought the story was over. He responded to this teacher by saying he would ponder the meaning of the story. But the rabbi said the story continues, and sitting down, he started again. Once the skylark realized he had given up his feathers and could not fly, he came to his senses said the rabbi. Desperate, he hopped and stumbled through the desert, gathering worms. A small one here, a small one there. And after several days of striving and toil, he had a small pile of worms and returned to the peddler. Here are enough worms to exchange for my feathers. I need them back. The devil, however, just laughed and said, you can't get your feathers back. You got your worms and I've got your feathers. After all, a deal's a deal. And with that, he disappeared into thin air. And as the rabbi finished speaking, the young apprentice noticed a tear running down his teacher's cheek and said, Rabbi, why the tear? He said, the heart of God breaks when we give away our feathers for worms, but even more, his heart breaks when we try to buy our feathers back, for only God can restore our feathers. Because we engage in the old patterns of life, we're giving up parts of ourself for quick shots of satisfaction that cannot last. And by so doing, we're actually you losing parts of our humanity. We lose our ability to do what we were created to do. And so in this first half of the passage, Peter is highlighting behaviors and desires in our lives that actually make us less human, that vandalize the image of God that is inside each one of us. These are practices in life that harm us and harm other people around us. And that's the old way of life that Peter highlights for us. It's it's the before picture of a follower of Jesus. And in verse 7, Peter turns and gives us a picture of our new life in Christ. It's the after picture. Peter launches into this description of our new life with a motivation when he says in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things began with Christ's resurrection from the grave. Jesus is presently reigning at God's right hand. Jesus will one day soon return to set all things right and to finish what he started on the cross and with his resurrection. And we're going somewhere. It's the story the Bible tells. And Peter's saying, we're living in the last days. And so we need to use that as a motivation to grab onto this new life that Jesus has purchased for us. Instead of drunkenness, we're called to sobriety. Instead of lust and passion, we're called to earnest love. Instead of orgies, we're called to practice hospitality. Instead of exploiting others, we're called to serve others. And this is the life that we're moving towards. It's a vision for followers of Jesus. And it's so important for us to hear these words from Peter because I want you to hear this this morning. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. We are often guilty of living the Christian life simply by focusing on what we want to avoid, on what we're not supposed to do as we follow Jesus. We wanna keep from the sins that we see in verse three and oftentimes we just stop there. But I wonder if you've ever thought about who you want to be. I wonder if you've ever not just wanted to keep from doing something, but actually wanted to move towards something. In other words, do you have a vision for your life with Christ? A compelling vision, an attractive vision. When you think about following Jesus and the transformation that he wants to bring to you, not generally, but to you specifically, what do you envision in two, in five, in 10 years from now? How is your life going to be different then than it is now because you're following Jesus into a compelling vision for what he wants? Look, we'll one day be raised with Jesus and we are gonna reign with him forever. And we're called to use that as a motivation to begin moving into that direction even now because it can't be lost. It'll just be completed. Talk about a compelling vision for living in freedom and walking in righteousness. God wants us to make a commitment to holiness to put on the new man or the new woman. And it's important to recognize, I wanna say this, that we don't earn God's love by living this new life. But because we already have God's love, we already have his resurrection power, we can actually respond to God and to live the kind of life that Peter is painting for us. It's so important to understand this, that the gospel opposes merit. The gospel does not oppose effort. The gospel always opposes merit. You cannot earn God's love but it never opposes effort in the Christian life. We're called to press forward into the new life that God wants for us. Peter gets us started with living into this new life, this compelling vision in verses 7 through 11. He talks about the new life being one characterized by a sober mind, a sincere love, a radical hospitality, and using our gifts to serve others well. And it's a complete contrast from the old way of life that Peter described earlier in verse three. He says, the old has passed away and now we're called to live into this new pattern as we follow Jesus. And Peter asks his readers to be sober-minded. In other words, be clear-headed. We're called to avoid that way of life that constantly looks for an escape. And it's so tempting to do this, so tempting to numb our pain and we do it in as many different ways as there are people in this room. We do it with substances. We do it with pornography. We do it with relationships. We numb our pain with our credit cards and our material possessions. But we are meant to be clear-thinking people. Instead of drunkenness, our new vision is to be sober-minded. Peter asks his readers to demonstrate sincere love for others. And he gives an interesting caveat there. He says, because love covers a multitude of sin." Peter's basically saying that love has the ability to take the oxygen out of sin the same way that a blanket chokes the air out of a fire, chokes the oxygen out of a fire. We're called to keep evil from breathing for long, to take its oxygen away by pouring on love, to keep short accounts, to allow love to cover sin and put it to death. Peter also touches on hospitality as a characteristic of our new life in verse nine. He says, show hospitality. And this hits me pretty hard without grumbling. So strategically important in the first century when commercial motels were not around and those that were, were normally they normally had sketchy reputations. And instead, travelers of going to these motels, they would head to the town center in hopes of being invited home by a kind resident. And on top of that, I mean, think about this. We don't often think about it. There were no church buildings for Christians to meet in when Peter was writing to these churches in modern day Turkey. So where did they meet? Well, they met in people's homes. And because anyone could wander in off the streets and oftentimes following Jesus was a dangerous proposition in that day and age, who knows if you might be putting your family and your property in jeopardy by hosting the church meeting that Sunday. The bottom line is that it's hard to imagine an action that has more power to impact another person than hospitality. When you hear Christians, your friends, reflect upon the influential experiences that they've had in their faith, it's really rare to hear them talk about a particular sermon they heard or even a book that they've read. But many people do point back to normal, mundane hospitality as being a profound demonstration. In leaving an indelible mark of the gospel in their lives. Hospitality is so powerful. And we're called to do it, Peter says, without grumbling. It's like Peter's been inside my house after everyone clears out on a weeknight after dinner. I always joke, that's when hospitality really begins because that's when the cleaning begins and that's when the grumbling from yours truly normally starts. Rachel will tell you all about it. And I grumble because hospitality can be hard. It can be inconvenient. Oftentimes, a lot of us feel like we've got to have uh, the perfect home, the marble countertops, the clean kitchen, the redone den. And we pull away from this Christian practice because we feel like we're not enough. But Peter is inviting us back into hospitality as this new way of life to share others with, with others what we've been stewarded with, to give them a taste of God's love. And lastly, Peter touches on serving one another as a characteristic of our new life. And he touches on both service with words and actions. I hope you noticed that in verse 11. We're meant to build others up with gifts that God has given us. If you're articulate, you can bless others with your words. If you like to be behind the scenes, there's lots of ways you can bless others with your actions. And this is the new life that God is inviting us into this morning. And it's also, that Jesus might receive glory and honor by our lives now and for all eternity. And I realize as we close this morning that you might be looking at certain areas of your life thinking, man, that is a compelling vision that Peter paints. I really would love for that to be true of me, but there's no hope. We look at certain areas of our life and we've given up on the idea of restoration in a lot of ways. I don't know where that is for you. I know where it is for me, those places where I've given up in a sense. We're not sure that this new life that Jesus offers us is for us. And we've got the ability, I know this because I know myself, to be more cynical about ourselves than we are about anyone else to be more hopeless about our own hearts than we are about any other hearts that we come into contact with. But here's the truth. When God looks at you, he is never cynical about you or the new life that he wants to bring to you. And we have a choice on offer this morning. We can live according to our old lives or we can move into this new way of life that Jesus offers and we'll stumble and we'll fall and we'll take two steps forward and one step back. But only one of these choices is going to satisfy us. Only one of these choices will ultimately bring life and contentment and wholeness. And Peter is inviting us to find that life in Jesus. In the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, there's a part in the story, you've likely heard this before, where Jill finds herself by a river with hopes of finding a drink in order to quench her thirst and to find refreshment. But she encounters a problem when she comes to this river. She, she encounters a problem in her quest for this water. She finds Aslan standing there, the lion by the river, and she's afraid. And she begins to back away in search of a different source of fulfillment to quench her thirst when the lion, who represents Jesus in these stories, says this. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. "'May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do?' said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. But the delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. "'Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come?' said Jill. "'I make no promise,' said the lion." But Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings, emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you'll die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. To which the lion replied, there is no other stream. Jesus is inviting us this morning to life. He's inviting us to a resurrection life. He's inviting us to something that can be ours because of what he has done on our behalf. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for your love and care in our lives. We thank you for the way that you invite us into a new way of life, a life that you have purchased for us by your life, death, and resurrection. And we pray that as we come to embrace you more deeply, that you would help us to experience small tastes of life even now as we live here on a daily basis, looking forward to the day when you will one day fully and finally bring us the life that we all crave and satisfy our souls completely. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.